saw a meme the other day that said, I'm, I'm tired of living in unprecedented times. I'm tired of living through historical events. And some of you can probably resonate with that. I mean, let's talk about what we've experienced recently. I, I mean, right now, what's going on is, is war uh, between Russia and Ukraine. And then you've got the sleeping giant of, of China that everybody's worried about. What are they going to do? And there's the question about Taiwan. And then there's Apparently, the Syrians are wanting to get involved in this, and then there's the whole question of NATO and what are we doing, and it's a little bit unsettling. And, and then, of course, there's everybody's favorite virus, um, COVID, uh, which is uh, is another thing that we've just lived through, and hopefully, Lord willing, are, are coming out on the other side of all the restrictions. I know my kids are excited to go back to school without masks uh, this week, but we lived through a, a shutdown. Think about that, a global shutdown. I remember hearing about the, the first NBA play, player to, to come down with COVID, and then they were canceling the season. And then by that weekend, we had shut church down. Um, I mean, this was just unheard of before to think about all of that and to have anticipated all of that. Uh, how about uh, inflation? Something that you guys are feeling probably and, and realizing, oh man, that burger at McDonald's doesn't cost a, a buck 99 anymore. Now it's two fifteen. Uh, and the gas prices at the pump, right? How about insane gas prices going up like crazy? Which, by the way, shameless plug for the retreat. If that's a reason not to go to the retreat, find somebody in carpool um, with them and help them with gas on, on the drive up there. But, uh, but don't let that be a reason not to go. Um, increased hostility against the church. I mean, we're, we're looking at pastors in Canada being arrested and uh, and, and told, hey, you guys can't meet anymore, and their building's being seized, and that's just to the north of us. But even here, there's uh, an increased pressure against the church being the church and, and teaching what the Bible teaches. These are times that are unique. These are times where we are feeling a weight and a pressure. And, you know, we just need to be honest that life is hard sometimes. In fact, oftentimes it's hard. And as believers, we may fall prey to the mindset that life should be easier for us as Christians, but the reality is it's, it's so often the opposite. The Bible tells us we should expect hard times in this life. The Bible says as, as believers, yeah, we're aliens and strangers. We're foreigners in this land, and it's not a, a friendly land. We are behind enemy lines in this world. And because of that, we should expect hostility. We should expect suffering. We should expect persecution. The Bible tells us that we should feel like we're swimming upstream against the currents of this culture in this world. It's that tension that we live in as believers in an unbelieving world that is what our, our subject is all about tonight. That tension of God's discipline in our lives, uh, something that initially we may not want or desire or think we want or desire, but if we take a, a closer look and if we look closely at what this passage is saying, I, I think we're going to come out on the opposite end of that, not just grateful for his discipline, but desiring that in our lives when we see its impact and what it does for us. So take your Bibles if you're not already there, Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to start in verse 3, which is where Nathan ended last week for us, and we're going to go uh, just initially here down through verse 5 together. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 3 through 5 says this, Consider him, and who's the him that he's talking about here? Sunday school answer, Jesus. There you go. Consider Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? 
My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. So he's just come out of reminding us of Christ and saying, hey, you know what? Run after Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Consider Jesus. Consider his suffering who endured a hostility at the hands of sinners. And then he says to us, when you consider your own suffering, you haven't shed your blood the way that your Savior shed his blood for you, have you? It's interesting for us to consider the fact that, that Jesus learned endurance and had to learn endurance. We've already seen that in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 through 9 says, In the days of his flesh, that is when Jesus was here and walking among us, the, the incarnation of Jesus. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications. The picture here is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, which if you're tracking with our daily Bible reading, we just read from Mark's account in the Gospel of Mark there. Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Y'all, if, if Jesus had to learn obedience through endurance, through suffering, through, uh, through holding fast, through persecution... We should expect nothing less than that. And that's what we face in this world. But he reminds us quickly, he says, yes, consider Jesus who endured such hostility at the hands of sinners, as Nathan even described for us last week in the, the, the depiction of the cross, the depiction of the crucifixion there. And that's where our author wants our minds to go. He says, think on him. And then he says, you, as you're sitting here at church, remember he's writing to a group that was tempted to go back to Judaism, to leave off of Christianity because things were getting hard for them as, as Christians. But he tells them, he says, look, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. So this was not as though Christians were being killed for their faith at, at this time, at least in this context that our author was writing to. Yeah, they were being mocked and maybe they had suffered financially. Maybe they were driven from their homes. Maybe the heat was getting turned up on them, similar to what we're experiencing a little bit here in our culture. But he's saying, you haven't gone through what your Savior went through. Y'all, when, when we think about our situation, we, we really don't have a whole lot to complain about at this point in time. Praise God for that. And your struggle against sin, even that concept, are you struggling against sin? The difficulties in your life, the, the hard times in your life, the, 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 the feeling like you're swimming up, upstream against the current, because my assumption is that's what the majority of us in this room feel, is that because you are agonizing, which is that word struggle in the Greek, against sin and against the world's system? Is it because you are not loving the world, as John called us to not love the world, the things of the world? Is that why you're suffering? Or are you suffering maybe because of sinful choices that you've made in your life, because you have compromised and now you're facing the consequences? Those are two totally different camps here. What we're talking about is when we choose to obey the Lord, and that makes life difficult for us. That's what we're talking about. That's the endurance that pays off in our lives that he's talking about here at the beginning. There's a book that I would commend to you called Light from Old Times by J.C. Ryle. Light from Old Times. You can get it on Kindle because I did this week because I, I lost my other copy of it. Three bucks on Kindle, $2.99. Light from Old Times. In this book, Ryle goes through the, the Edwardian uh, reformers. You say, what in the world is that? Well, King Edward died, and after King Edward died, 
And there, he was King Edward a certain number, and I don't remember what number he was because I'm, I'm not a royal fanatic as some might be. But long time ago, King Edward died, and the one that came up after King Edward was Mary, who got the, the nickname Bloody Mary. And the reason she got the nickname Bloody Mary is because she oversaw the execution of countless, well, not countless, but hundreds of men and women who were faithful believers in Jesus Christ. In this book, Light from Old Times, uh, J.C. Ryle goes through and highlights a lot of their stories. And much like, the, like Fox's Book of Martyrs, he, he walks us through their life, their teaching, and then takes us to the stake where they were burned for their faith. People like uh, Nicholas Ridley or Hooper, John Hooper, or this one, Roland Taylor, who, when he was led to the stake where he would give his life for his faith in Jesus, said this. He said, good people, I have taught you nothing but God's holy word. And those lessons that I have taken out of God's blessed book, the Holy Bible, I am come hither this day to seal it with my blood. In other words, he said, I have nothing to apologize for. I have nothing to repent of when it comes to what I'm being charged with. He said, all I've done is preach the word. And it's led me to the stake to be burned alive at the stake. And he said, I'm I'm here to do that. So, Let's ask ourselves, in our struggle against sin, we have not yet resisted to the point of needing to shed our blood, have we? If you're thinking, man, it's hard for me to be a believer in my context, whatever that may be. Are you being imprisoned and led to the stake? Are you being paraded past your family as these men were, as they walked past their wives and their children and were chained to a stake and lit, literally lit on fire with a bag of gunpowder hanging around their neck so when the flames got high enough, it would just completely decimate them? My guess is no. And I don't mean to, to, to Jesus juke your suffering by going, well, your suffering is not as bad as other people. I get that this life is hard. And the author does too. His whole point is just keep holding fast. Keep holding fast and understand that this is not just random and pointless. In fact, look at where he goes next. He says, have you not remembered? Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son or daughter, for those of you out there that might be sensitive to that language. My son, do, you, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. So now he's saying that the suffering that we're enduring is from the, the hand of God. Right? Think about the book of Job. Who afflicted Job? Satan or God? If you're going, I don't know how to answer that question, well then good, because it's both. Because God sovereignly oversaw everything that Satan did to Job. Satan couldn't touch Job or do anything to Job without first going to God and asking him permission. And God was doing something in Job's life, disciplining Job, not for something that he had done wrong. And that's where we need to understand the nature of discipline. See, for so long, y'all, I misunderstood this passage. I thought that this passage had to do with, man, if I sin, then God's going to smack me upside the back of the head. And that's what I need to be thankful for. That's not what we're talking about. The word for discipline here in this passage is the word for instruction or training in our language. Okay? The way that a, a parent disciplines a child and brings them up in the training, in instruction, and teaches them things. And yes, that's going to involve rules and regulations. That's going to involve us setting parameters and guidelines for our children because we don't want them to stray into error. And that's going to cause our children to feel constrained and restricted. But this is not talking about when you do something wrong, you're going to get punished for it. That's not the discipline that he's talking about here. 
So when I say that God was disciplining Job, he was training Job. He was teaching Job. He was doing something in Job's life. And that's what discipline does in our lives as well. This quote, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary or give out is the idea there. To be weary, to to give out under the weight of, to, to collapse under the weight of when reproved by him. It's a quote that's taken out of Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12, just directly quoted by the author. The context here is the author calling for us to endure like Jesus endured. And remember the passage I read a moment ago, Jesus endured suffering and he was made perfect through that, right? He had to, to learn obedience through that suffering. And so the suffering that, that Jesus endured, the father was doing something in the life of the son through that. Right? As you and I endure suffering in this world, swimming upstream as believers, agonizing, struggling against the sinful world around us. God is doing something in our lives. This is not discipline as though we've sinned and now we're going to be punished because Jesus never sinned and yet he's the model that he's holding out here. No, this is discipline like us learning from the training and instruction of the Father. And if you're a believer, this is going to happen in your life. This is going to happen in your life. In fact, we should expect it. Point number one tonight is that. Expect the tension of God's training the tension, that, that feeling like, mm, man, I, I don't like what I'm seeing in this world. My, my wife and I were watching TV uh, last night, and she can bear witness to this. I, it made me salty. It made me frustrated. I was like in a bad mood after we were watching TV for a while. Why? Because we could not find anything to watch that wasn't celebrating or glorifying sin. And it was like, she asked, should we try the new season of, of Survivor? Because we binge-watched that throughout the pandemic because we hadn't seen it before, so we caught up all the way. Well, now it's like you can't get through it without this homosexual couple, this homosexual, and this couple, and this homosexual couple. And they're just celebrating this and throwing it back in our face, right? And the world is glorifying that which Christ died for. And it's mind-boggling and so infuriating sometimes. That's the tension, the tension that says we don't belong here, that we are aliens and strangers in this world, that we are swimming upstream, that what we hold to be true, what we hold to be good, what we hold to be right is not what the world holds to be true, good, and right. And that tension is part of God's training, part of God's molding us. And so we should expect it. We should expect that life is not going to always break our way. We should expect that the Lord is going to go to work in our lives to separate our affections from this world as he unites them to Jesus. And because of this, the author says, don't regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Don't despise it. Don't hate the discipline of the Lord. Don't grate against the discipline of the Lord. When you feel the, the constraint of God's word in your life, when you feel it pressing in, don't rebel against that because God is doing something in your life. We should expect that because that means that, that he's at work in our lives. He's training us. He's instructing us. He's bringing us up. And yes, sometimes it's difficult, but it means that it's working in our lives been spending a lot more time on the treadmill than I ever have before, right? If you get on the treadmill and get off the treadmill and you haven't sweat, then you've wasted your time, right? The point of getting on the treadmill and running is to work your body out, is to sweat. It's to exercise. And that's hard. Every time I get on the treadmill, I don't like Adam a little bit more. <laughs> I'm going to have to deal with that when I get to heaven. Be like, dude, if you just led your wife well, 
I wouldn't have had to run on the treadmill, or at least I would have not had a dad bod while trying to run on the treadmill, right? <laughs> but the treadmill, when you're on the treadmill and you're, you're huffing and puffing and it's wearing you out, there's a sense of like, this is a good thing because it's doing something. Well, Christian, if you're in this world and you're not feeling like you are being worn out by the world's system in a sense that, man, I don't fit here, then your Christianity is not doing what it's meant to do, which is to make you more like Jesus. We're going to get there. But this first point is, look, we should expect this. If Jesus endured, we're going to have to endure. And right now, we can be thankful that we haven't resisted to the point of shedding our blood. Might we get there? Maybe we will, but right now we haven't yet. He picks back up in verse 6, continuing on this theme of discipline or instruction or training. He says, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. In other words, the the very need for you to hold fast, the very need for you to to keep going, the very fact that it's hard for you to stay as a believer because of the, the, the current against you is evidence of God's discipline here. Again, not discipline as though you've done something wrong and now he's punishing you. Discipline as though he's training you, that he's bringing you up according to his instruction. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? How many of y'all grew up with your parents disciplining you or training you or putting restrictions on you and they said, I'm doing this because I what? I love you. And you sat there and you said, you don't love me. When I grow up, I'm gonna let my kids eat candy whenever they want. All the time they're gonna be able to, I'm just here to tell you, no, you won't, you won't. Well, guess what? It's true. The constraints that your parents put in your life are there because they love you. Maybe imperfectly, obviously imperfectly. But what motivates that discipline in in your life is their love for you as their child. Likewise, that's what motivates God's discipline in our lives. He disciplines the one he loves. He disciplines the one he loves. This is nothing new. This is what God was doing with Israel in the Old Testament as well with the law. That was the point of the law. Galatians chapter 3 says this. It says, why then the law? It was added because of sin, because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. That's Jesus, a reference to Jesus. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. He's talking about Mount Sinai and Moses and the the, the reception of the law there. Verse 23, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law. The law was doing something. It was disciplining us. It was teaching us. It was training us for a purpose, right? We were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian or our tutor is another word there, way that you could define that word in the Greek. Our, our tutor until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. So, so the law, all the do's and don'ts of the Old Testament, all the regulations, rules, restrictions, everything else was put in place by God because he loved his people and wanted to point them to Jesus and to salvation by faith alone, through grace alone, in, in Christ alone. That's why the law was there. That, that's the Old Testament. Or Paul puts it this way in Romans chapter 7. 
He says, what then shall we say? That the law is sin? That the law is evil? That the law is wicked? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. See, God was through these restrictions and these commands and these laws that he put into our lives revealing to us that we were sinful people. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had said, do not covet. So that's an extension of God's grace. He's training us to be able to see that we are rebellious people and that we need Jesus. And so he put these things in place. Why? Because he wanted to be a cosmic killjoy? No, because he loves us and he's trying to teach us and train us something. When you're feeling squeezed by God's word, by his expectations of you, by the competing desires in your life of the spirit and the flesh, praise God for that tension. Seriously, rejoice in that. You say, why would I rejoice in that? Because it's evidence of the fact that you are a child of God and that he loves you. If you don't feel that tension, if you feel at home in this world, if you don't feel like there's anything about your life that's competing against the word of God, against the spirit, there's a warning coming for you on that. But for the rest of you, if you feel that tension, praise God for that. Your parents put a curfew in place because they knew that it was unwise for you to be out any later than that. You may have disagreed, but look, they're the ones with the authority and they love you and so they did it. They put restrictions on what movies you could see because they wanted to keep you from filling your mind with stuff that is unnecessarily evil and wicked. They told you you couldn't get out, go out with a certain guy or girl because they wanted to protect you from a perceived danger. Again, rules, regulations, they're putting restrictions, they're putting discipline in your life, not because you've done something wrong, but because they want to protect you, they want to keep you from the, the errors, they want to keep you from the potential danger. Why? Because they, they love you. Look, that is what God does in our lives as well. The restrictions, they may have felt oppressive, but they were really loving. God's commands may feel restrictive to you, but they are evidence of his love in your life. He's treating us as his children. Y'all, I can tell you it is not a loving thing for a parent never to discipline their child. It's not a loving thing for a parent to say, I have no rules and regulations in my home. You can do whatever you want to do. Whatever makes you happy, go do it. That is a hateful and spiteful and cruel thing for a parent to do with a child. Why? Why would you say that? Why would that be cruel and evil? Because ultimately, at the end of the day, whether you want to agree with it or not, your parents know better than you do. They do. Just by nature of trial and error and the wisdom that God has given them through their own mistakes that they've made in the lives, their lives and the, the things they've learned through that, that they're trying to keep you from experiencing as well. And so putting these restrictions in place is a loving thing to do. And he does say, and chastises every son whom he receives. Yes, there is a time where God is going to punish your rebellion against him. With the wrath that he poured out on Jesus? No, but by letting you experience the consequences of your sin in real time? Yes. Eternal consequences? No, those were already satisfied on the cross. Temporal consequences? Well, no, you may go through temporal consequences and endure temporal consequences. And that too is part of God's love for you. So y'all, as you face opposition and even entertain the thought of going, is, is it really worth it when there's so much hostility and I, I, it's so exhausting to swim upstream and I feel like this, to, to be a Christian and to live according to the Bible is so hard. Uh, let me just give you two options here. You can go find a church that's going to soft pedal the word of God, that's going to allow you to live like the world lives and you're going to be able to hold on to your label of Christian 
until you stand face to face with Jesus. Okay, that's option one. You can go be comfortable and still hold on to church as a mascot if you want it. Or option number two, you can be grateful for God's discipline because it's a reminder that you are his child. That he loves you. That he cares for you. That that tension that you feel between the world and the spirit within you is a good thing. Because the alternative is not favorable for us. I mean, can we just pay attention to what he's about to say here, right? There, like I said, there are churches that are taking God's word and the, the precepts that feel constraining and confining in our culture, what makes a marriage, what defines somebody as male and female, whether or not there's anything outside of male and female. Look, you can go find a church anywhere you want to go find a church that's going to tell you, oh, well, we don't really have to preach those things or believe those things. Th- those are, are outdated and, and we've evolved past that thinking. You can find that church, but I just want to let you know that if you're trying to escape the, the, the instruction, the training, the confining, the, the, the discipline of the Lord, can we just look at what the text says? If you are left without discipline, if you don't feel this constraining presence in your life, if you don't feel like, man, we are standing toe-to-toe at odds with the world's system, he says, if you're left without discipline, the Bible is going to tell you this, then you are illegitimate children, and not sons. In other words, you don't belong to God. So these churches that are bailing on God's word are bastardizing the congregations that follow them. They are rendering them illegitimate children of God. All in an effort to be comfortable and accepted by this world. And if that's what we're after, then you just need to read Hebrews here where the author says, if that's what you want, then what you are saying is you do not want to be a child of God. Because here's the deal, y'all. I'm not going to discipline somebody else's child. I mean, if they annoy me enough, maybe I'm going to a little bit, right? I always tell my wife, I like kids, my kids. But I will discipline my children. Why? Because I do love them. I want them to be functioning, contributing members of society. But more than that, I want them to know and love Jesus. And so I'm going to raise my children differently than the world is going to tell me that I should raise my children. Because of my love for them. I would hope that you're getting to that stage in life, and maybe you're already there, where you can look back at the discipline of your parents in your life and be somewhat grateful for it. And to understand that your parents did things that at the time you were probably just enraged about and upset about and, and hating. And now you can look back on it and go, okay, I, I didn't like it. Maybe I still don't like it, but I understand. I understand why they were doing that because they, they loved me. I would even venture a guess that some of you can even do that in your life with God's word. And go, man, I wish this wasn't what God's word said, but I, I, I understand that it's better for me to submit to his word than to rebel against his word. Because at the end of the day, the reality is God knows better and wants better for you than you want or you know. He does. Just like your parents. When you were four years old, your parents knew better than you and wanted better for you than you wanted at that age. Because what you wanted at that age would not have been good for you. 
Well, y'all, what we want in our flesh is never what's good for us. What God wants for us is always going to be better. And so maybe you wanted a, a job really badly. And you're saying, man, I, I really want this job. And yet God said no because his design for you is better and he knows better and wants better for you. That could be God's discipline in your life. Again, not punishing you because you've done something wrong, but putting guidelines, putting restraints, putting constrictions in place in your life because he wants something better for you and he knows better than you do, right? And he loves you too much to give you something that is, is not up to what his design and plan is for you. Or maybe you wanted a relationship to work and yet God has said no because his design is better for you and he wants better for you. Or maybe you're in a relationship and you're thinking, man, I want to have sex with my boyfriend or girlfriend. And yet God has said no to that outside the context of marriage because he wants better for you and knows better than you. Or maybe you think, I want the temporary high or buzz from drugs and alcohol. But God has said no because he knows better than you and wants better for you. Or maybe you just want to be able to affirm the cultural mores and agree that someone should be able to love whoever they want to love and identify as whoever they want to identify. But God has said no because he knows better than you and wants better for you. See, these are are ways that we feel the discipline of God in our lives, and we should be thankful for it because he's doing it, because he loves us, because we are his children if his discipline is there, if it's there, right? David in Psalm chapter 32 felt the discipline of the Lord when he sinned, right? This is a little bit of the chastisement part of things. Psalm 32, three through four, for when I kept silent, my bones, he says, wasted away through my groaning all day long for day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. Whose hand is he talking about? Your hand. Whose hand is that? It's God's hand. David is saying, I sinned, right, with Bathsheba and killed Uriah the Hittite. And I tried to cover it up. And yet when I covered up my sin, I felt like my whole body was wasting away. I was physically affected by this. And Lord, I felt your hand heavy upon me, your hand of guilt and conviction upon my life. That is God's discipline. That is his chastisement in David's life. Why? Because he loved David and wanted David to bring his sin to the light, to confess his sin because God knew better than David and wanted better for David. Living a Christian life in a non-Christian world will put you swimming upstream on a regular basis in that opposition that you feel that squeezes you from the current pressing in the opposite direction is evidence that God's discipline is active in your life. And you should be thankful for that. Be grateful for that. It's his, the evidence that you are his child and that he loves you. And y'all, this is how we can begin to take the difficulties in our lives, the moments of suffering in our lives, the moments of of having to endure trials and opposition in our lives. This is how we can take those and begin to pivot them to opportunities for thanksgiving. Because we know that God is doing something because he loves us through this. That this suffering is not pointless, it's not aimless, it's not meaningless. But just as a parent disciplines his child, God is doing something like that in our lives as well. Which is why I think it's interesting that this whole section of Hebrews follows right on the heels of Hebrews chapter 11, which is the hall of what? The hall of faith. 
where he's just explained faith and everything that faith is and why faith is so necessary. And then he gets to this part about, so as you are suffering, you need to believe, you need to trust, you need to have faith that what God is doing is good for you in the midst of this. You need to be able to have faith like Paul did when he was able to say, look, indeed, I, I, I count everything as loss. Take everything away from me that I would have boasted and take everything away from me that would have made me successful in the eyes of the world. Take it all away because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. You can't have that mentality without faith. Y'all, you can't have a mentality that is grateful for discipline in your life without faith that God is better and knows better than you know, and that he loves you and wants better for you. This type of trust calls for big faith in the Lord. But again, I, that warning if you are harboring sin currently without any guilt, without shame, without actively battling that sin, and walking into this room to worship God without fear, without conviction, or trepidation over that sin, you do not know the discipline of God in your life. And the writer of Hebrews would say, it's at least pause, reason to pause over concern that you may be an illegitimate child. But if you're tempted but battling, lured but resisting, if you're feeling that sanctified tension in your life between the flesh and the spirit, that's cause for you to give thanks and to rejoice because God is treating you as one of his children. That discipline that's present in your life. Look at verse 9. He keeps going. He says, Besides this, we have all had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. This is where our faith must be anchored if we're going to endure. It's to, to this concept here. And he holds out the, the, the paradigm of the earthly fathers. And I recognize not everybody in, in this room had an earthly father. Not everybody in this room had an earthly father who's a good earthly father who disciplined you well. But you've had a coach, you've had a teacher, you've had a principal, you've had somebody, you've had a pastor, you've had a small group leader who has played that role in your life, where you've felt that constriction, you felt that, that mindset of going, I don't like this, but I know that you're doing this because you, you, you love me. I know you, you have my best at heart, and I know that to disobey you is not going to go well for me, right? That's when he says, we had these earthly fathers that disciplined us, and we respected them. We had enough fear to, to do what they told us to do because we knew that to do the opposite was not going to be good for us. And then he says, the argument from the lesser to the greater, how much more should we be doing that with God? Who doesn't di discipline us imperfectly? You might have had the, the best earthly father ever, and yet he didn't discipline you perfectly. There were moments where he disciplined you for the wrong reasons, for the wrong motives, for the wrong drive. God 
by contrast, always disciplines us perfectly for our good. Notice that. The, the constraint, the, the, and I've alluded to this already, and now we're here finally in the argument that, that the point of God's discipline in your life is not just to make you miserable, but it's to make you more like Jesus. It's to make you more holy. It's for your good that we may share his holiness. And that's going to come in measure here, that as, as you experience more of God's discipline in your life on this earth, you are going to be more like Jesus in the process. You are going to be progressively sanctified. But the day that we ultimately share his holiness is the day that we are in heaven with him. And God is using his discipline in our lives to preserve us and to protect us from drifting and wandering and, and, and jumping ship so that we will ultimately arrive one day to be in heaven with him. That's the point of his discipline. It's for our good that we would be sanctified, that we would be like Jesus as a result. God is not in the business of making your life difficult just for the fun of it. But he's doing this for your good, your benefit, your advantage. Point number three tonight is this. Welcome the outcome of God's discipline. Expect it, be grateful for it, and finally, welcome it, the outcome of it. This is going to be good for me, right? You get on the treadmill, why? Because it's going to pay off. You go to the gym, why? Because it's going to pay off. You do these things that are hard because of the payoff, because of the outcome. I've probably used this illustration before. It's, it's one of my go-tos. It's one of my favorites just because of the way that it fits so well, I think, with the de- description of the, the Christian life. But Michelangelo is David, right? The, the marble that the David statue was carved out of. Anybody been to Florence and, and seen David in real life? It's pretty impressive, right? I mean, it's, it's a, a work of art, literally. Um, duh, Captain Obvious. <laughs> but even if you've just seen a picture of it and, and you can get the impression that, wow, this thing is significant, right? You would think that that was some of the finest marble ever quarried, that it was protected and preserved and, and shipped and made sure that nothing could ever damage it or hurt it or anything else. And it was delivered to Michelangelo. And Michelangelo was the first one to set eyes on it after the covers removed. And he's like, wow, this is beautiful. It's amazing. I see the David in there. Everyone can obviously see that this is going to be a wonderful work of art that's going to emerge from this. But that's not the story. You see, the block of marble that became the David was actually rejected twice by two different master artisans before it ever got to Michelangelo. They said, this is imperfect. It's got too many flaws to it. Nothing good can ever come out of this hunk of rock. So much so that by the time that it was delivered to Michelangelo, it had been left out in the courtyard uh, in the, the, basically the, the, the tool shed of a cathedral and exposed to the elements and the wind and the rain and everything else and just left there and forgotten. And then somebody remembered when Michelangelo says, well, I, I could take a crack at it. And they delivered it to Michelangelo. And Michelangelo brought the David out of this malformed, twice over rejected, ugly piece of of marble. But I want you to think about that process, right? It starts with a hammer and, and chisel. It doesn't start with the fine sandpaper to smooth out the small imperfections. It starts violently. It starts with the heavy blows of the artist with the tools in hand, knocking off big chunks that that were imperfect, that were flawed, that that didn't need to be a part of the statue in order to get to the interior, in order to get to what Michelangelo saw was there the whole time. And so he continues to go through this. and, And the more and more you watch the artist go about it, the more and more you see the figure of David emerging. 
but still it's a process that takes time. And even after you step back and look at it and you go, okay, here he is, then it's time to take the sandpaper and the fine finishing tools and go to work to smooth out still the rough imperfections that are there. You know, that's a picture of what God does to us as Christians through the process of sanctification in our lives, which involves the discipline of the Lord. That's what we're talking about in this passage. Not to offend you, but you are, and I am, we are, the twice-rejected, ugly, malformed, imperfect hunk of marble that's sitting out in the dumpster yard waiting for somebody to come take away and do something with. And it's God who sees Christ in us after we are saved, and God goes to work through the act of sanctifying us to make us more and more and more like Jesus. That project's not going to be finished this side of eternity. It'll be finished when we go to be in heaven with him, and we are like him because we see him, as John says, right? But that process of bringing Jesus out of us, shaping us into Jesus, that's a process that involves discipline. And that's why we should welcome God's discipline in our lives. Because of what it's doing, it's making us more like Jesus. Paul had that mindset in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. He said, so we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. My outer self may be breaking down, but God's doing something bigger than that internally. With my soul, with my spirit. My inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. This light momentary discipline in your life is preparing for you an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen, these are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. When you're tempted to grumble because your life is hard and it would be easier not to be a Christian, you've got your eyes here instead of there. And you've locked your eyes on the things that are seen and not the things that are unseen, the things that are transient, that are temporary, and not the things that are eternal. I had a mentor once look at me and say to me, PJ, you are too consumed with sacrificing the eternal on the altar of immediate gratification. And that's where we are so often in our lives. We're willing to take our eyes off the reward, off the prize, off being like Jesus, off, off the eternal weight of glory, because we're uncomfortable here right now, and we just want the, the, the discomfort to end. Or God has shut a door in our lives, padlocked it, deadbolted it, and put a raging pit bull on the other side of it to say, this is not my will for you, and yet we've got our battle axe, and we're trying to knock the door down because we want it when God has said no. And our, we are, 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 like C.S. Lewis said, we are the children playing with mud pies. Because in the slums, because we don't know what's, what's meant by the offer of a holiday, at a vacation on the beach. God knows so much better than we do. And we lock our eyes here and we miss the point. Again, Paul, Romans 8, 14 through 17. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him. That's what our writer in Hebrews is talking about. Consider Jesus who endured such hostility from sinners 
You haven't shed blood over resisting your sin. Look, if Jesus suffered, you should expect to suffer. This is talking about the discipline of God in our lives as well here in Romans chapter 8 in order that we may also be glorified with him. The very next verse is this, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Y'all, we need to stop settling for the, the, the comfort here and forgetting about, like Nathan was saying earlier, what's gonna matter 100 years from now? the passage that we all know so well, Romans 8, 28 through 29. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those called according to his purpose. That means God's discipline in your life as well is working for your good. You say, well, according to what purpose? Well, he continues on. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's what God's doing in your life. With the discipline, with the hard things, with the disappointments, he's working to conform you to make you more like Jesus. He's got the hammer and the chisel. He's got the sandpaper in hand. He is bringing Christ out of the twice-rejected, malformed, imperfect, ugly piece of rock that all of us were prior to Jesus. I want you to consider your life. 70, 80 years, maybe, right? What if, in that time, your dreams go unfulfilled and unsatisfied? All of you are, are at that stage of life right now where you, you are just in the fertilizer of dreams, if I can give a weird, creepy picture. But seriously, I mean, you are primed for dreams and ambitions in your life. And yet, hopefully, all of you understand that none of those are guaranteed. None of those desires, the pictures of the perfect family and everything else that maybe you have in your mind, you're not guaranteed any of that right now. What if you don't get any of it? Whatever you want right now, whatever your ambition, your dream, your hope is, what if you don't get it? What if you physically suffer for your whole life? What if what you're enduring right now and going through right now, what if it never goes away? Or what if you develop something five years from now? What if you get in a car accident five, year, five years from now and you become a quadriplegic? What if you're single for your whole life? For some of you, that's the scariest thing you've seen on the screen so far. But honestly, what if, what if you are single for the whole rest of your entire life? You never get married. You never have kids. What if you never have the family you want? Let's say you get married. But as happens, you, you don't have kids, can't have kids. What if you don't get that dream job, the career that you are working so hard for right now? Some of you are putting yourselves through college right now. You are scraping by. You are, are saving up. You are paving, paying your way through. What if it doesn't work out the way that you want it to? That's cheery. What if all of that is your future, but you're more like Jesus as a result?
will be worth it. Think eternally. Will it be worth it? When you die and you're with God at that point and you see things from his perspective and you understand how he has made you like Jesus through forfeiting all of those things and through going through the discipline of, of missing out on things that you thought would bring you happiness and joy and satisfaction here on this earth. When you stand with the Father, when you stand with Jesus, and you see all of a sudden how you are now more like Jesus because you went through all of that, do you think it's going to be worth it at that point? I hope so. Because the other question is flip all of that around. You fulfill all of your dreams and satisfy all of your ambitions. You're in perfect health for your whole life. You get married to the trophy husband that you want, ladies. And he never has a dad bod, ever. You have the two and a half kids that you want to have. Or you double that and you have five. <laughs> but you have them. And they, their hair parts in the right way. They don't have a cowlick that is, looks awkward in family photos or anything like that. And you get to homeschool them, and nobody tells you what to teach them. And you know that that's the way that everything should be done. And what if you do get your dream job? And you accelerate all the way through, and you become the CEO, and you are successful and wealthy and healthy and everything else but you miss Jesus through all of it. Same question. Will it be worth it? And I'm not suggesting it's an either or. I'm not suggesting that as Christians, you never have good things happen in your life or that you're doomed to a life of singleness as a quadriplegic with no kids that nobody talks to ever, right? I'm not suggest suggesting that, that it's an either or. I'm just telling you guys, we need to be far less in, in love with our plans in this world and far more content with the fact that God is making us more like Jesus as he brings some of the trials and the difficulties that we walk through in life into our lives. And if we were more content there, I think we would be a much more joyful, far less stressed, anxious, fearful people than we are. To have a greater confidence in what God is doing and trust in that. should cause us to welcome God's discipline in our lives when we think about what it's doing in our life, which is why the Apostle Paul said this. He said, do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching Christ to others, I myself should be disqualified. Paul's not just welcoming God's discipline in his life. He's saying, hey, can I partner with you in this process, God? Can I, can I discipline myself for godliness in this? Because I want, I want the outcome. I want to be more like Jesus. So if you're out there tonight and you're thinking, 
about this life, you're thinking this life is going to be better for you when or if or when you get this or you're going to be happy or content when this happens, you're looking for home in a foreign land. You're looking for safety and security behind enemy lines. This world is, is broken and fallen and marred and distorted from what God's design is for it. And as Christians, we live in this world and we are going to, Lord willing, feel that we are swimming upstream the whole time that we're here. Because we are. We're going to feel the discipline of the Lord in our lives the entire time that we are here. We should expect it. And we should be grateful for it. Because it reveals that we belong to God. And its absence causes us to question whether or not we do belong to God. And we should finally welcome its outcome because the outcome of it it means that we are more like Jesus than we would have been without it. So when your parents told you, look, I'm doing this for your good because I love you, there's truth to that because that's what God's telling us in this passage too. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful that discipline, that trials, that suffering, that pain, that heartache in this world is not random. God, that it's not pointless, that it's not meaningless, that it has a purpose behind it, that you are doing something with it. And in fact, what you're doing is greater than, than anything else we could ever hope to obtain in this world and in that you are making us more like Jesus. And so, so God, take the hammer, take the chisel, take the sandpaper, take whatever you need, God, to, to go to work in our lives, to, to chisel off the areas that, that are still loving this world and not in submission to you. God, lead us, guide us through your discipline, train us up, instruct us, ingrain in us what it looks like to, to be faithful to you. Keep us on the straight and, and narrow, God. Keep us swimming upstream against the current of the world moving against us. So that one day we will be with you and we will look back on this and we will be able to say, yes, everything was worth it because it made us more like our Savior. Everything was worth it because even if we could go back and trade it all, we would never do that because now we stand face to face with Jesus and now we understand. As Paul said in Corinthians, we see now dimly, then we shall see clearly as face to face and we will understand, we will know exactly what you were doing with everything that you brought our way in our lives. God, thank you that you are sovereign and that you are good and that you love us this much. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.